A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon. And today for Julia Chatterley, great to have you with us. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky wrapping up his historic trip to Washington, D.C. and delivering an impassioned speech to a joint session of Congress. Zelensky making the case for new aid, but stressing, quote, your money is not charity. We will be live in Washington with a reaction. Plus, former head of FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, set for his first court appearance in New York today. That's after being extradited from the Bahamas. All this as his former girlfriend and Alameda Research CEO, Caroline Ellison, pleads guilty in the case. Also, another former FTX executive also turning on SBF. A full report just ahead. But first, U.S. futures and European shares are lower on this second-to-last trading day before Christmas. Wall Street coming off some nice gains Wednesday with all of the major averages up more than 1%. We had some positive earnings from FedEx and Nike, also encouraging consumer sentiment numbers, helping investor sentiment. Important U.S. economic data just out, too. The final read on third-quarter GDP showing the American economy growing at a 3.2% annual rate. That is a significant revision higher. More on today's data just ahead. Green arrows, meantime, in Asia, the Hang Seng rallying 2.5%. That's after China vowed to do more to steady the economy, particularly its hard-hit property sector. But there is also growing worldwide concern that a dire health emergency is unfolding in China after the lifting of zero COVID restrictions. A full report on that coming up. But first, we begin with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky delivering a powerful speech to members of the U.S. Congress asking for more help. Washington has provided more than $21 billion in security assistance so far this year. That's including the $1.8 billion package that President Biden announced on Wednesday. Jeremy Diamond has more now from the White House. A historic visit to the United States. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky meeting face-to-face with President Joe Biden. The first time since Russia's invasion of Ukraine nearly one year ago. 300 days. Brutal assault on the Ukraine's right to exist as a nation. Zelensky expressing gratitude to the Biden administration and the American people. First of all, I really, all my appreciations from my heart, from the hearts of Ukrainians. The American people have been with you every step of the way, and we will stay with you. Biden making good on that promise hours later, announcing a fresh package of military aid. $1.85 billion package of security assistance that includes both direct transfers of equipment to you that Ukraine needs. That equipment includes the highly sought after Patriot Air Missile Defense System. What's going to happen after Patriots uh, are installed? After that, we will send another signal to President Biden that we would like to get more Patriots. <laughs> Zelensky's visit closing with a primetime address before a joint meeting of Congress, where he received a rousing welcome and delivered a show of gratitude to the American people. I hope my words of respect and gratitude resonate in each American heart. In his upbeat speech, Zelensky tried to shore up public support in the U.S. and back home in Ukraine. Ukraine didn't fall. Ukraine is alive and kicking. Ukraine holds its lines and will never surrender. A big promise in times of celebration for many around the world. We'll celebrate Christmas. 
celebrate Christmas, and even if there is no electricity, the light of our faith in ourselves will not be put out. Despite his optimism, Zelensky argued that Ukraine must continue to defeat Russia on the battlefield in order for the war to end. Your support is crucial, not just to stand in such fight, but to get to the turning point to win on the battlefield. And he argued defeating the Russian invasion is a worthy investment. Your money is not charity. It's an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. And CNN's Kevin Liptak is live with us now at the White House with more. Kevin, great to have you. So as we said, this was a historic day, but how much of this do you think timing is at play? We know there is a shifting of power here in the U.S. and Congress. And so how much of this visit do you think had something to do with just the, the timing of it all? Yeah, the timing was certainly not incidental. President Biden just invited President Zelensky to Washington uh, 10 days ago. And so certainly both men were highly cognizant of those political dynamics in the Congress when uh, Zelensky was speaking to them last night. And he had so many constituencies that he was trying to address. Of course, there were the lawmakers in the room, Republicans and Democrats alike, but also the general American public to which he was speaking, who may be wondering why the United States continues to send tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine when there are so many problems in the United States. And that's a concern that you've heard from Republicans in Congress, particularly the most conservative Republicans who are wary of this amount of aid to Ukraine and aren't necessarily going to rubber stamp President Biden's requests going forward. But there is a sense this morning that President Zelensky was able to accomplish what he came here to accomplish, which was to rally American support, uh, demonstrate this unity between the United States and Ukraine and sort of uh, come as a symbol of the Ukrainian resistance. And of course, yesterday was full of symbols, whether it was Zelensky's uh, drab military uniform or President Biden's blue and yellow striped tie. Uh, but underneath that, I think there are some lingering concerns about what comes next in Ukraine. And you heard that in both men's remarks yesterday, President Biden saying that the United States will continue to support Ukraine through 2023, indicating that he doesn't see a quick end to this war. And President Zelensky also so acknowledging that there are some tough days ahead as winter sets in, as Russia regroups on the battlefield, he uh, came and said that the support, of course, he's thankful for it now, but that he does need more. He says, is it enough? Honestly, not really. And that was kind of an indication of where things stand right now. President Zelensky's constant demands for more and more armaments has been a source of tension with the Biden administration. And I think in inviting him here in person, there was a sense that meeting face to face, talking eye to eye, uh, they would be able to sort of deconflict some of these things. And that isn't necessarily what happened. Zelensky came out afterwards still very much saying that he wanted more weapons, including more of the Patriot missile batteries that President Biden announced yesterday. Now, this morning, White House officials said that they weren't necessarily surprised by those requests, that they would be surprised, in fact, if he didn't make those uh, demands known to the American public. Uh, but certainly we are emerging from these historic meetings uh, with a new sense of unity, a new sense of unity with American lawmakers, uh, but certainly no more clarity on what the end of this war might look like. Well, hmm. 
Look, Kevin, as you say, I mean, so many takeaways, one of which was very apparent is that neither side believes that this will end quickly, as you say, stretching uh, into 2023. Kevin Liptak, great to have you. Thank you. Meanwhile, strong reactions pouring in from Russia. The Kremlin saying neither president, Biden nor Zelensky, showed a willingness to listen to Moscow's concerns. It also strongly criticizing the U.S. decision to supply that Patriot missile system to Ukraine. Claire Sebastian is with us now live in London with the details. Claire, great to have you. So, I mean, it is not necessarily a surprise to hear the Kremlin say these things, but what, what more are we learning? What else have they said? Yeah, uh, well, they were sort of defiant, at times dismissive, and the responses from the Kremlin full of the kind of narrative flipping the alternate reality uh, that has become commonplace uh, in their remarks on this war. As you say, the, the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov talked about how uh, the West and the U.S. are not listening and Ukraine are not listening to Russia's concern. He said that they're ignoring the barbaric, as he called it, shelling by Ukraine in the Donbass, and that by these provisions of weapons, the U.S. is now de facto fighting against Russia. This is a line that we've heard repeatedly uh, from the Kremlin throughout the war, in fact, but, but perhaps more so over the last few months as Ukraine's counteroffensive uh, has gained traction. In response to the issue of the Patriot missiles, which we knew were a great concern to Moscow, this is what Peskov had to say. He said, this does not contribute to a speedy settlement of the situation. On the contrary, this leads to the fact, unfortunately, the suffering of the Ukrainian people will continue longer than it could have. So shifting the blame onto the U.S. and the West for the suffering inflicted on Ukraine, which is, of course, suffering inflicted by Russia. But this was also an exercise in optics on the Russian side as well. Zelensky had his big moment in Washington. We saw President Putin a few hours earlier appearing at a huge meeting of his military and defense top brass, touting the expansion that he's planning of the Russian military. And then there was a follow-up to that today, the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, appearing in official video in what they called the zone of the special military operation, greeting troops, inspecting conditions there. So clearly Russia projecting an image of power and defiance, even as we know that it is locked in essentially a violent stalemate in Ukraine. Claire Sebastian, thank you. Sam Bankman-Fried is back on U.S. soil and expected to appear in a New York courthouse today. The former CEO of FTX is facing eight criminal charges, including fraud, conspiracy and money laundering. Court records show two senior FTX executives have pled guilty to multiple criminal charges and are cooperating with U.S. prosecutors. CNN's Kara Scannell joins me now with more details. So, Kara, what happens now that he is back on U.S. soil in terms of the judicial process? Where do we go from here? Well, good morning, Rahel. Yeah, Sam Bankman-Fried, after several false starts in the Bahamas, is back on U.S. soil. He is inside the courthouse behind me, where later today, hopefully this morning, he will face a judge and face these eight criminal counts of fraud and conspiracy in what the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York has called one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. The Bankman-Fried was arrested in the Bahamas, uh, where he has spent the past week. There were several false starts in the courts there, but he did agree to, avoid, uh, to not challenge his extradition. And the Bahamian Ministry of, fin of, of Foreign Affairs had signed off on that yesterday. That put him on a flight back to the U.S. Now, while he was in the air, the U.S. Attorney's Office announced that they had charged two of his top executives. Uh, that was Gary Wang, who was the co-founder of FTX, as well as Caroline Ellison. She was the co-CEO of the hedge fund Alameda Research. Those two entities intertwined in this alleged fraud. 
as you said, they are both cooperating with prosecutors. That put, places significant pressure on Bankman Freed, having two insiders, two people close to him, now working with authorities. So when he appears in court today, it's possible the judge will arraign him on this indictment uh, where he will enter a plea in this, uh, likely not guilty. He's shown no inclination uh, to plead guilty at this point uh, in this fast-moving investigation. And then they will discuss bail. Now, sources tell me that his lawyers are in talks with federal prosecutors, working to arrange some kind of bail agreement that would allow him to avoid detention in the U.S. Now, that is not unusual for financial fraud cases. A lot of people compare him to Ponzi schemer Bernie Madoff. As you may remember, he was also released on bail. Rahel? Hmm. Very interesting point, Kara. We'll, we'll have to wait and see what happens with that, what comes out of that. Thank you. To China now, the World Health Organization is raising concerns about an unprecedented wave of COVID-19 cases in China. It says more information is needed to understand how severe it is and has asked China to share more data. This says concerns grow about a shortage of drugs within the country. CNN's Selena Wang has the latest from Beijing. There's relief that after three years of its draconian zero-COVID policy, China is finally opening up. But the country is not prepared. Hospitals are coming under pressure. Fever and cold medicine is running out. The local versions of Tylenol and Advil are nearly impossible to get at drugstores across the country. Now, to try and calm panic buying, some local governments are resorting to rationing the amount of medicine for sale, down to the exact number of pills. And dozens of pharmaceutical companies say they're going all out to try and increase production. But even as COVID is rapidly sweeping through the country, China has only reported less than 10 total COVID deaths for this entire month. That is a strikingly low number. And the government now saying that it is narrowing the definition of COVID-19 deaths to only include patients who died of respiratory failure directly caused by the virus. That means that people who died because of another underlying condition will not be counted as a COVID death, even if they were sick with COVID at the time. That goes against the World Health Organization's guidelines, and the WHO says it will severely underestimate the true death toll in China. This change in China's counting method also comes as crematoriums across the country fill up. I visited a crowded crematorium in Beijing this week, and from the video you can see the long line of cars waiting to get into the cremation area. The parking lot was also completely full. Several people there told me their loved ones had died from COVID, and employees said they've been swamped with work. I saw metal containers full of yellow body bags and workers loading more coffins in. Stores nearby selling funerary items said they're much busier than normal. I also went to a COVID-designated hospital where a worker told me elderly patients with COVID are dying every day. A new study by Hong Kong researchers estimates nearly one million people in China could die from COVID if the country doesn't take necessary public health measures, like increased vaccinations. The vaccination rate is still lagging for people over 60, and only around 42% of those over 80 have received a booster shot. And experts say that third dose is necessary to get enough protection since China is using less effective vaccines compared to the mRNA vaccines used overseas. China is only now going through this painful reopening that the rest of the world has already gone through. But China, it's not sharing the same data. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing. Here in the U.S., a holiday havoc as more than 1,200 flights are canceled. Over 100 million people are currently under alerts for severe winter weather and wind chill as temperatures plunge at rates never previously recorded. 
Pete Montine is at Chicago's O'Hare Airport, where he is seeing a lot of flights grounded. Pete, that is an airport I know very well. I went to graduate school in Chicago. It's busy on a good day. What's it looking like now? I mean, what's the latest with cancellations and delays? It is so busy here, Rahel. You know, this is not even the end of the security line. It snakes hundreds of feet behind me. These are the folks who have the right idea. Get out early before the snow starts. That's what travel experts and airlines have been telling us as these cancellations are only now starting to ramp up. About one in every flight into and out of Chicago O'Hare here has been canceled so far today. Just check FlightAware. Nationwide, we've seen 1,333 flights canceled in the U.S. This is so critical, especially for our international viewers, because Chicago O'Hare is a major connecting airport, not only for American Airlines, but it's the biggest hub for United Airlines. Went behind the scenes to see their network operations center and how they are scrambling to save trips, trying to reroute passengers who are making connections through other connecting airports. They are trying to do this despite their best efforts. There has been so much effort put into this by the airlines, but they cannot control Mother Nature. I want you to listen to Joe Hines now, who's the VP of Network Operations for United. He says the snow, sure, that's going to be a problem here, but it's really the biting cold here tomorrow. The forecast high here, 2 degrees Fahrenheit. Listen. Cold temperatures are going to stay through Friday, and that's what's going to present challenges. People who have gone on the ramp and, and experienced the high winds and, and sub-zero temperatures are really going to be challenged to work uh, safely. We are in for a real doozy here, Rahel. The big tip from airlines, download their app. That is the way you get up-to-the-minute, up-to-date information on whether or not your flight is delayed or canceled. Airlines say delays and cancellations are inevitable with a storm like this. Winter storms are a thing they deal with often. Thankfully, they knew that this one was coming. United Airlines has an interesting innovation that they're doing because in some cases, if you find out in the terminal that your flight has been canceled, there can be a really long line at the customer service desk. And in some cases, they're handing out a QR code to passengers. Scan that on your phone. You're connected live via video call with the customer service agent who can help you figure that out. Might actually be a customer service agent not here in Chicago, not in a place where the weather is bad, but in a place where the weather is nice and sunny like Los Angeles because they're not all that busy trying to solve problems for passengers with help. Oh, I think that's such an interesting point, Pete, that, you know, sort of put you through to someone who can actually talk to you and save you a trip to the airport, at least minimize that bit of frustration, although your travel plans may be ruined. Pete Montine, great to have you. Thank you. Well, straight ahead, hoping for a miracle on Wall Street. What does Santa have in store after what's been a really tough year for the markets? And a deal right on the deadline. We will head to Israel, where a political veteran has just formed a new government. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks still on track for a lower open across the board. Choppy trading so far this week. You can see Dow, NASDAQ, and S&P futures all off with the NASDAQ futures off the most, about 1.2% right now. But hope springs eternal, even still, for some kind of Santa Claus rally. Stocks are hobbling toward the year-end finish line with the S&P 500 down 18%. The NASDAQ slumping 31% since January. And the new year 
won't be a walk in the park either, with major global central banks vowing to keep hiking rates until inflation subsides further. Even rate hike laggard, the Bank of Japan, could be tightening policy in 2023. Economic data today also pointing to ongoing strength in the U.S. economy, with third quarter GDP revised higher to a 3.2 percent annual rate. Jobless claims rising at a less than expected pace as well. Maybe not so great news, though, for Fed looking to slow the economy. We'll discuss. Paul Donovan joins me now. He is the chief economist at UBS Wealth Management. Paul, great to have you. So let's start there with this GDP report. I mean, great news for the economy, maybe not so great news for the Fed. I mean, how do you read it? Well, I think we've got to be a little bit careful. I mean, the, the GDP numbers uh, are subject to a lot of revision at the moment, more than we've had in the past. This number is going to be revised again. I think most economists believe that the U.S. economy did slow down towards the end of the year. Economic activity has become more subdued. Uh, the Fed itself is now saying job creation probably stopped in the second quarter. Uh, you know, the non-farm payrolls numbers are, are just not accurate. So beneath the surface, there is clear signs of a, a slowdown in economic activity. But of course, what the Fed needs to do is to get inflation down. And that's a rather different question. Mm, I see. So even though we're still seeing consumer spending, I mean, does this at least lead to a bit more confidence in the soft landing goal? Well, so consumers are spending, um, which is quite remarkable when you think about it, because, of course, real wage growth is still yeah. not just negative. I mean, it's, it's catastrophically negative, which is by no means a U.S. phenomenon alone. This is what we're seeing here in the U.K. and in, in Europe as well. Um, but consumers still do have room to leverage their balance sheet. At least middle and higher income consumers do. Lower income consumers are feeling a lot more of a strain. So you're starting to see divisions emerging in the consumer. And I think that it's fair to say that middle income consumers may very well have a soft landing, but it will feel a lot harder for those mm -hmm. at the lower income end of the spectrum. I think that's a fascinating point. And I would argue it, it might already feel quite hard for people at the lower end of the spectrum. Paul, I want to circle back to something you just alluded to, that this is not certainly a U.S. phenomenon, this global inflation that we're experiencing. Uh, German November producer prices fell more than expected, almost 4 percent month over month. Do you think heading into next year, we might actually see a pretty significant fall in global inflation, maybe faster than we were expecting? So I think this is where the risk is because this is a rather peculiar set of inflation we've had. The first point is we haven't had 18 months of high inflation. What we've had are three separate, totally distinct waves of inflation with very different causes, very different remedies. Now, the current wave of inflation is mainly driven by profit margin expansion, it's not a wage-driven inflation. And that's important because profits can get squeezed a lot more quickly than a wage-driven inflation is likely to be. So if it's wage-driven, the inflation is likely to be stickier, whereas it's profit-driven, as it is at the moment, that's more likely to come down quickly. And in fact, you've only got to look at the complete collapse, in fact, an unprecedented collapse in U.S. durable goods price inflation over the course of this year to see just how quickly uh, price changes can come down when circumstances change. Well, that's an interesting point, because, look, I think a lot of consumers have long suspected that some of this inflation was being driven by, let's face it, greedy corporations that wanted to sort of maintain their, their profits and their margins. I mean, what to do about that? I mean, if you're a Fed Chair Powell and you're trying to fight this, you know, 
inflation monster. I mean, what to do about that? Well, when you get profit margin expansion, and of course, this is what companies are supposed to do. I mean, they're supposed to try and maximize their profits. What happens is there are two ways of attacking this. So the first way is to simply slow demand. And Fed Chair Powell's rather you know, trill cry of hike, hike, hike has, has certainly done that. In fact, he's probably done a bit too much damage, uh, in my opinion. But you've certainly seen a slowdown in demand. We've seen this in the UK, where disinflation forces are coming through. We're starting to see it in continental Europe. But the second thing you can do is just change consumers' attitudes, because consumers are being sold a story that these price increases are justified. And if they start pushing back against that, saying, no, actually, we don't believe this, then the companies will actually start to curtail the margin expansion for fear of losing customers. And I think that's why we're starting to see a lot of central bank narrative talking about um, profit margin expansion as a driver of inflation. We've had mm-hmm. the Brainard of the Fed, we have Lane of the ECB talking about this. The problem is, generally, ordinary people don't pay that much attention to central bank speeches. Um, So it's something that I think if we start to see complaints about margin expansion trending on social media, that's probably a good disinflation indicator. Um, But otherwise, it's going to be mainly about slowing the pace of demand. Look, I think it's an interesting point, certainly within the uh, financial news community. You know, we hang on every word that Powell says, but it's always important to remember that most people don't. Uh, Paul, before I let you go, forecasts and predictions for 2023. I mean, what are you expecting? So I think it's it's a year of inflection points uh, as we look ahead. Um, I think we continue to see growth slowing into the middle of the year and then hopefully stabilizing. I think we've hit the inflection point on inflation. Inflation is coming down. The debate is simply, as I've just said, how rapidly it comes down. And I think we do get the inflection point in central bank policy. So the Fed, I think, probably goes too far. We've got another policy error from Powell. But we'll, by the end of the first quarter, be looking at a peak of rates. Bank of England is probably the first one to peak on rates. The ECB will be lagging behind. Remember, it hasn't even begun to tighten quantitative mm-hmm. policy yet. Um, But probably second quarter is the peak of European rates. So we're coming to this turning point. And I think the way I would characterize 2023 is this is the first year genuinely that we can describe the global economy as being post-pandemic. Here's hoping. Paul Donovan, wonderful to have you. Thank you. He is the chief economist at UBS Wealth Management. And coming up on First Move, a powerful message from President Zelensky More on the Ukrainian leader's historic visit to the U.S. coming up next. Welcome back to First Move and back to our top story. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky delivering a powerful speech to the U.S. Congress in his historic visit to Washington. Your money is not charity. It's an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. He also presented Congress with a Ukrainian flag signed by soldiers on the front lines. Well, Ripley is live with us now in Kyiv with more. So, Will, what's the reaction been like in Ukraine to this historic visit? 
Hi, Rahel. Well, certainly people here have tremendous pride in their president. He is extraordinarily popular here. This nation has really rallied behind Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, any political differences that people had before the war melted away on February 24th when he decided to stay in Kiev and said he didn't need a ride to evacuate the country. He needed ammunition, and boy, has he gotten it. And they have used it brilliantly on the battlefield. Uh, but Nonetheless, uh, when you're now dragging on more than 300 days of this war, it is a strain on any country, not to mention the devastating loss of life on both sides uh, as a result of this brutal and unnecessary invasion launched by Vladimir Putin. And yet, uh, if this show of uh, friendship in Washington, if this speech was intended to make the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin think twice about all of this, well, that's certainly not the indication uh, that we get uh, through their public messaging anyway. The Kremlin's saying, uh, that nothing that Biden or Zelensky said gave them, you know, any indication that they have a respect for Russia's concerns, Russia's safety concerns, uh, which they say uh, was the reason that this invasion happened in the first place. They are worried about the expansion of NATO. The Kremlin said that bringing the Patriot missile defense systems, which are designed to stop Russian missiles from raining down on critical infrastructure, plunging millions of people in this country into the dark. I mean, the speech was in the middle of the night, but also a lot of people here couldn't have watched it if they were awake because they were without power. Even here in Kiev, sometimes people have less than one hour of electricity a day in the capital city. City, the most arguably well-protected area in the whole country. Uh, and then you have the Russian foreign ministry uh, saying that uh, this is basically Russia preparing itself for a prolonged confrontation with the West. They say that the U.S. Uh, actions are setting up uh, this prolonged confrontation. Vladimir Putin has been calling for the modernization of his military, pouring more resources into it, training the hundreds of thousands of conscripts uh, to prepare them for you know more potential ground battles ahead. The Ukrainians believe the Russians will try to make a move on Kyiv sometime early next year. So even though it was a triumphant moment in Washington, Rahel, uh, for uh, you know, President Zelensky, uh, he comes back home to the reality that this war is very much uh, not over and in some ways may even just be getting ready for an, an even more scary phase in the not too distant future. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Well, one of the takeaways, certainly, that it appears all sides can agree on is that this will likely continue for quite some time. Will Ripley, great to have you. Thank you. And for more on this, the former U.S. ambassador now to Ukraine, William Taylor, joins us. Ambassador, wonderful to have you. So do you think this visit for Zelensky was a success? Does he go back home with what he wanted? Well, there's no doubt um, that this was a success. Um, President Zelensky came here, um, not, not obviously not in triumph, but he came here to thank the American people, to thank the Congress, to thank President Biden for the amazing support, the incredible support, um, politically, humanitarian, financial, but in particular, military support. And he made that point over and over. He thanked people over and over. So that was his first point. It was a it was a brilliant move. And then he asked for additional support. Of course, he's going to ask for additional support. He is facing Russia. Russia has attacked him. So he needs additional support. He laid out pretty clearly what kind of support he still needs. And if he gets that support, he can prevail. He, he definitely believes, and the Ukrainian people believe, they can win. So in that sense, Rahel, he, he, he came away having done what he needed to do without boasting, um, being very appreciative, but being very frank that he needs more. 
Ambassador, I'm not sure if you heard our previous correspondent just a few moments ago, Will Ripley, who, who suggested that if this trip was meant to make Russia think twice, it didn't do that. And so in, in that sense, are you surprised at all by the strong reaction that we have gotten from the Kremlin after this visit? Well, not at all. I did listen to Will. Great report. Um, and we expect that from the Kremlin. We expect no different from the Kremlin. Uh, the Kremlin had no reason to invade Ukraine, had no justification whatsoever. And it has continued to push soldiers, untrained soldiers into Ukraine and continue to lose. The Russians have lost in every field uh, that they have fought. They've, they've lost in Kiev, they lost in Kharkiv, they lost in Izum, they lost in Kherson. They're fighting to a draw. They're maybe even losing Bakhmut. President, President Zelensky was just in Bakhmut two, three days ago now, um, and, and he then came directly to the United States. So the Kremlin is losing, and they are looking for some way to regain that. And so far, they've not found it. Do you think, I mean, certainly Ukraine has shown really remarkable military success, certainly surprising many, right? I mean, we heard Zelensky himself say, against all odds and doom and gloom scenarios, Ukraine didn't fall. Do you think this missile patriot system will be a game changer? Is there any one piece of ammunition, piece of weaponry that could be viewed in that way as a game changer? I don't think it's the Patriot system that's going to be the game changer. I would say there are two game changers. One we've already seen and the other is to come. The one we've already seen, so-called HIMARS, these long range rockets that were much longer than the standard artillery. They, these HIMARS uh, that the Americans have provided to the Ukrainians, and Ukrainians have used extremely effectively, have turned the tide. These HIMARS have turned the tide. They are game, have been game changers. And we've seen since they've arrived the counteroffensives that the Ukrainians have mounted and have pushed the Russians back. There's another game changer that is yet to come that I believe is being considered by the administration, and that is even longer range versions of those HIMARS. Hmm. The longer range versions would allow the Ukrainians to go deep into Russian held territory, still Ukrainian territory, but the Russians hold territory in Ukraine that they're using to mount these offensive, these counter, these offensives. Um, even though these offensives are, are ma manned by untrained soldiers, the, the targets that are deep uh, behind the Russian lines are the ones that these longer range weapons will come. And then the other game changer, well, are the tanks and the aircraft. That will, those, that triple will allow the Ukrainians to push the Russians out of their country. What do you think would have to happen for the U.S. to more seriously consider providing that type of weaponry, those longer range missiles, those tacks? What would have to happen before we actually see movement and momentum in that direction? I think we're seeing some movement in that direction already. It's not yet there, but I think what's caused it, and you asked the right question, what's caused that reconsideration that is, that is allowing administration to think about these longer range, heavier weapons, and that is these brutal attacks on civilian targets. The Russians are just, they're losing on the military battlefield, so they're attacking civilian targets, unarmed civilian targets that are causing Ukrainians to freeze in the dark, without light, without heat, without water. That is, is affecting the decisions, and you have to stop that somehow. And, and in order to stop that, 
the longer range weapons and the more offensive weapons allow the, Ru the Russians to be pushed back, the Ukrainians to push the Russians back out of their country. I think that's coming. You know, it's been incredible to, to just watch the resolve and the morale of the Ukrainians, even in the midst of these barrage of these missile strikes and even in the midst of these attacks on their critical infrastructure. How significant do you think Zelensky's visit to U.S. President Joe Biden was for the morale of the Ukrainians in terms of just holding on and pushing through even longer? Well, you're exactly right. Morale is so key to this war, to any war. But morale is to weapons as three is to one, um, as, the, as the leaders say, the military leaders say. It is so critical. And the morale on the Ukrainian side is high because they know what they're fighting for. President Zelensky is able to tell everyone, Ukrainians, Russians, the international community, why they're fighting. They're fighting for their land. They're fighting for their freedom. They're fighting for their independence. They're fighting not to be subordinated to Russia. That's a morale booster. And, and the Russians don't have that. President Putin can't tell his soldiers anything about why they're there. Why are they there? He cannot explain this. So the morale is a big factor in this visit by President Zelensky will highlight that. Ambassador, wonderful to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ambassador Ryan. William Taylor there. And still to come on First Move, Benjamin Netanyahu has formed a government, a new government. We're live with Jerusalem with the details and his call with Vladimir Putin after the break. Welcome back to First Move. Former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announcing that he formed a coalition government just minutes before the deadline. The new government will likely be the most right wing in Israel's history. His office says Russian President Vladimir Putin called Netanyahu to congratulate him. CNN's Hadass Gold joins me live from Jerusalem. Hadass, great to have you. So when we say right wing, help me understand what exactly does that look like in Israel? Well, when you look at the Israeli history and you look at who has made up uh, the different governments in previous years, and you look at sort of what their positions are, and then you look at the coalition that Benjamin Netanyahu has built, and that's where you see, and that's where you're getting a lot of the experts, the people who study this, who are saying this is likely going to be the most right-wing government in Israeli history. Now, last night, just minutes before the deadline he had at midnight in order to be able to announce that he had formed the government, Benjamin Netanyahu really took it down to the wire. It was something like 15 minutes before the deadline that he actually called the Israeli president, notified him that he had managed to form this government. And it's not necessarily a surprise that he's managed to form the government. That's because from the November 1st election, he and his allies actually did much better than the polls were expecting. And it was quite a win for these extreme right-wing parties that are now seeing themselves in position of power that honestly a year ago for many people in Israel would have been unfathomable that they would be in them. Now, there are still a few hurdles that they have to pass before they can be officially sworn in. Namely, they actually have to pass a few bills that would even allow some of these ministers to take on their roles or even serve as ministers. For example, one of the ministers that has been uh, suggested, he's been convicted of tax offenses in the past. And so there needs to be a bill that will be passed that will essentially work around the law to allow him to become a minister. But all things are pointing towards this new government is expected to be sworn in within a week or so. And because of the makeup of its ministers. It's causing several of Israel's allies even around the world to brace themselves for the next few months. Here's why. The new Israeli government setting off alarm bells around the world. 
even allies, warily eyeing Benjamin Netanyahu's new ministers, who will make up the most right-wing government in Israeli history. A stark change from the last coalition, now made up all of men and all orthodox, except for Netanyahu himself. Most recognizable is Itamar Ben-Gvir, once convicted of anti-Arab racism and supporting a Jewish terrorist group. Now, national security minister in charge of Israeli police. Eager to allow Jews to pray at Jerusalem's holiest site, where only Muslims are now allowed to worship. A place that has sparked intifadas and even wars. Former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Danny Ayalon, warning Washington will be on high alert. If they will perform what is uh, conceived in Washington as uh, provocations, uh, for instance, uh, change of status in Temple Mount, or uh, unchecked uh, enlargement uh, of uh, new settlements, this could be a very, very uh, big problem for Netanyahu and, and for the government. Then there's Betelal Smotrich, another far-right settler lawyer-turned-politician, has been named Minister of Finance and has also been given power to appoint the head of the Israeli body which controls border crossings and permits for Palestinians. Smotrich supports abolishing the Palestinian Authority and annexing the West Bank. Israel's staunchest ally, the United States, perhaps hoping the rhetoric won't match the actions. We will gauge the government by the policies it pursues rather than individual personalities. Other appointments causing uproar include a gay rights opponent who has vowed to ban pride parades to a position in the education ministry and proposed changes to the law of return, further restricting who is considered Jewish enough to be permitted to immigrate to Israel. Netanyahu, for his part, has repeatedly claimed that the buck will stop with him. I've had such partners in the past, and they didn't change an iota of my policies. I decide the policy with my party. But as the government has taken shape, his critics, like this cartoonist, say he's creating a monster he won't be able to control. And as you noted, one of the first people to call Benjamin Netanyahu to congratulate him after being able to form the government was Vladimir Putin. And it's interesting timing considering Zelensky was in Washington just last night. Now, Vladimir Putin is somebody that Benjamin Netanyahu used to tout on the world stage as somebody that he had a good relationship with. At one point during one election in 2019, there was a billboard up in Tel Aviv uh, that Netanyahu put up of him shaking hands with Putin. So it'll be very interesting to see how that relationship plays out now after Russia has invaded Ukraine and whether that relationship will change at all since Netanyahu has been out of power before he comes back. Well, yeah, great points. Hadas Gold, great to have you. Thank you. Justin, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has met with the Polish president on his way back to Kiev from the U.S. After the meeting, Zelensky said, quote, we discussed strategic plans for the future, bilateral relations and interactions at the international level in 2023. It is not clear what time he arrived in Poland. To the stocks now and the markets. U.S. stocks are up and running for the second to last trading session before Christmas. Stocks more naughty than nice today with the S&P 500 on track to break a two-session winning streak. Tech getting hit the hardest. That's been a common theme this year with the Nasdaq down by well over one and a half percent. And Forget about that popular song, Last Christmas. This month has been an aghast Christmas for the bulls with the S&P down 6%. And traders of a certain age might prefer to call it a blue 
Christmas. Paula Monica joins me now. Paul, look, whatever Christmas lyric you want to use, it has been a rough season, certainly a rough year for U.S. stocks. Without question, Rahel, I mean, this is the Grinch stealing the Christmas rally, perhaps. We could talk about Scrooge, the Krampus, yeah. if you want. You know, go as far as you want so with much. all these Christmas metaphors. But it is obviously a very, very concerning time for investors. And what's interesting is that it's a good news is bad news type of day today because GDP for the third quarter revised higher, 3.2% growth. You had jobless claims while still up slightly from a week ago, near historically low levels. I think that has investors wondering if the Fed has to keep raising rates aggressively for the foreseeable future. So that's why stocks are down. And that includes Tesla as well, Rahel. They are down again for, I believe, the fifth straight day. Another 52-week multi-year low, down 60% this year. Tough times for Elon Musk. I mean, look, I think that and Twitter has been one of the biggest business stories this year. Just the 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 takeover, the fact that it went through his leadership skills. Uh, Paul, you know, I wonder, do you think investors uh, have been a bit knee jerk this year? I mean, as you say, it's sort of a good news is bad news. But, you know, I spoke to a guest, a UBS guest earlier who said, look, GDP was revised higher, but it is still slowing. Consumer spending is still slowing. And so I wonder, do you think that we've all become just a bit too sensitive to the headline story? I think definitely that is the case, Rahel, because clearly, even though we've had this solid GDP number for the third quarter, there are questions about whether or not the fourth quarter is going to be problematic. We saw some weak retail sales numbers not that long ago for the month of November. There's also the issue of all these rate hikes the Fed has done this year to fight inflation. They will eventually have an effect slowing the economy. And that's why a lot of people are talking about a recession at the end of 2023. Paula Monica, great to have you as always. And if I don't see you, happy holidays. Merry Christmas, my friend. Thank you. And that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Again, it is the second to last trading day of this week before Christmas. So we will see how it all ends. Still a lot more of the session to go. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World is coming up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.